Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com. In addition to episodes of the show, thejazzsession.com features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. This week's guest is composer, trumpeter, and flugelhornist Brian Groder. His new album is called Torque, recorded with Sam Rivers and his trio. From that album, here's Spellcast. That's the sound of trumpeter and flugelhornist Brian Groder. His new album with Sam Rivers, Doug Matthews, and Anthony Cole is called Torque, and it's my pleasure to welcome Brian to the Jazz Session. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure uh, to share this time with you and your listeners. Talk about how you and Sam Rivers came to make this recording together. Well, I had the opportunities to work with Doug Matthews a couple of times down in Orlando, doing some multimedia presentations with uh, the playwright Joseph Hayes. And he suggested that I sit in with Sam's big band, which was uh, playing every Wednesdays at a great little spot called Will's that unfortunately has been knocked down in an urban renewal kind of thing in Orlando. And uh, Sam and I hit it off. And he said, well, you know, if you ever want to do something. And, of course, I remembered that. And uh, (laughs) a couple of weeks later, I uh, called him up. We spoke a while. And then he said, well, you know, uh, the next step is to talk to B and uh, work the financial thing out. And uh, after we did that, we uh, just booked it on the calendar and uh, came down, played a little with him once, and then came back down again to record. Now, this this album, most of the compositions are credited either to you or to combinations of the musicians on the album. What did you go into the studio with when you went in? Um, I brought a lot of music. Uh, I brought my book, which had a lot of compositions. I wasn't sure what we would do. We had rehearsed quite a few, and in the long run, we ended up doing a lot of different things than I planned, and I guess it's the model of my life. Uh, (laughs) You know, don't, don't stick to the plans you have and just go where things lay or fall. And we did record some of the songs that we... Um, you know, we're taking stabs at. And other things, we just hit it off just playing duets, and everyone seemed to be really up towards doing that. So we just did different combinations and um, put a couple of days together. And uh, then it was a matter of trying to figure out which combinations and what order worked best. But that's no different than any uh, album or CD that someone does. Um, and that, that was interesting. And then putting out some uh, cuts on my website from the C- uh, that weren't on the CD are currently up also, and there's a couple more there that I eventually hope to put up. Now, you said uh, some things happened that you, that you didn't expect. What, who kind of originated those things happening, those unexpected things? 
Oh, I, I think it's just, you know, being in the, in the studio, the process of what seems to gel, like, uh, well, let's just start playing and let's warm up to a little couple of, uh, uh, well, you know, ch- taking my, uh, checking mics and volumes, so Sam and me playing, and then Sam and, uh, and, and Doug playing, and myself and Anthony, and all of a sudden, well, this is kind of fun. Well, let's explore a little bit of this. And so you just go with it, because everyone is seems to be tuned in, and one of the greatest things about uh, the session was that we really seemed to have a great dialogue and conversation going on, and with those guys, uh, you know, their ears are so wide, they're listening to everything you do, and and playing off of that, and continuing the thought and the thread, and uh, and knowing when to leave it back open for someone to come back in. Yeah, I was going to say that the it's funny. It's it's surprising to me hearing the the backstory of the album because it it really sounds you know like a band. I mean, it sounds like a bunch of guys who are really comfortable playing with one another, who are really used to listening to one another. And I guess that's well, part of that is they are in fact a band, but also that you just have a lot of experience listening and fitting into all different kinds of musical environments, right? Um, I guess my career has been pretty varied, uh, and I guess uh, no matter what you do, I think you. You have to listen to the people around you, and um, I don't try to pigeonhole myself. I like all types of music. I really do. I listen to all types of ethnic music and genres, and I guess if you came and saw my record and CD collection, you know, you wouldn't wouldn't be too sure of how old I was or, you know, what, what I was into, and there's different things uh, I'm constantly listening to, and so influences and, and playing with different people. Uh, you know, I did some uh, time in Atlantic City playing in the, in the showrooms there, which was great because I caught the tail end of an era. And that was an education that, you know, you just, you know, you, you can't get anymore playing for, you know, the stars of, you know, pretty much my parents' generation and, and those books. And uh, that was that was pretty deep, you know, the five trombones, five saxophones, five trumpets, string section, and that whole thing, and and knowing how to play, you know, solos within that context, and, you know, you're just you're just the backers of, of the stars there. And then, you know, to do studio sessions, commercials, and even going on the road with Joe Cocker a little bit, and, you know, it's all good, it's all great, and um, you you always have to use your ears, and you always have to use your inner intuition and knowing what to play and when to drop out. Yeah, I mean, talk about not being pigeonholed. If your resume includes, you know, Cecil Taylor, Joanne Brackeen, Joe Cocker, Frank Sinatra, and Sammy Davis Jr., I think you've pretty much escaped the pigeonhole at that point, haven't you? Yeah, I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, um, some of the projects I'm working on now are pretty diverse, and I love that, and I write separately for all of those things. I think the master of that and a real guidepost to a lot of people is Dave Douglas. I think what he's done is brilliant as far as having separate little bands. And, you know, you look forward to hearing something from every one of those on, on some kind of uh, regular basis and knowing that you know he's going to come out with something else and uh, new. And that's great. Um, and I think that's one of the, the best things about this new music business, uh, if you will, you know, that are self-produced or um, more independent musician-based than the record company. It, it allows you to to have so many projects and, 
explore different avenues of things and and even put out music on the web um, you don't have to have a finished 10 10 song composition CD you can just put up little things and see you know what kind of reaction you get from people which is cool I want to talk more about your your background but before we do that let's uh, hear another track from the album this is part one of behind the shadows I'm curious to know how much of what we're hearing was created in that moment and how much of it existed before the first notes were played. That was all created in the moment. That's what's the beauty of uh, <laughs> playing with Sam Rivers. Um, I think th- there's that balance of knowing when to react to someone and knowing when to follow your line, when to state something from their line and state something from what you just played, and then to move on, and yet try to create some kind of form to that. And um, we did a couple of those in a row. I think I might have mentioned somewhere that I just reversed the order. Um, that was the second one we did, and Behind the Shadows Part 2 was actually recorded first. Um, but I just thought it laid better on the CD in a, in a different order. And... Um, I don't know. Um, it's it's just that process of of listening and reacting and and kind of figuring out, w- anticipating where someone's going to go and try to match them sometimes, and and resolve into a consonance. And I think music is always a series of melodic, harmonic, rhythmic dissonance to resolution, and that's that's the beauty of of music. And so trying to work with that in, in, in a musical form so that, it, uh, so that it's pleasant, that you have tension, but you also give moments of uh, resolution that uh, sparkle or, or just make sense. So yeah, that was all, that, that, that was all spontaneous. You mentioned a few minutes ago catching the tail end of a of an era when you were playing in Atlantic City, and you were also carrying on the family business to some degree, weren't you? Oh uh, well, yeah, in some ways, yes. Uh, both of my parents uh, were musicians. Started out in the uh, late '30s, early '40s. My father played with Bunny Berrigan and some other notable national bands, and and my mother also played in small groups here in New York City, and they did both commercial and straight-ahead jazz at that time, which was the popular music, as they often told me, <laughs> which is <laughs> quite the difference to now. 
What so they made did a they play, great, I'm sorry, I was going to say they made a great uh, livelihood, so uh, so it was kind of cool. <laughs> what instruments did they play? My father played trumpet, and my mother played piano and marimba, which I still have right here in my apartment. I have a 1934 Art Deco Deegan marimba. I'm sure everyone has one of those <laughs> in their kitchen. You know. <laughs> and were your folks eager to have you follow in their footsteps? My folks were eager first to explore any artistic passion. Uh, they definitely um, encouraged both my sisters and myself to learn an instrument and take it as far as we wanted, but there was no pressure to go uh, professionally. Um, I just found myself realizing that I really love this. Uh, in high school, I was making a great living uh, playing in rock bands. That was the year of horns, horn bands. And so I was uh, doing quite well <laughs> um, putting money aside, um, and I, I guess in anticipation for college. And then I decided to uh, pursue music. And so when you decided to do that, did you continue kind of in the rock circuit, or what was the next? What were the the initial steps in building a career for yourself? Oh, uh, well, being in my uh, my parents' uh, home, I was always uh, listening to jazz and and other forms of music. And when I got to college, um, at that time in the uh, uh, mid seven early mid seventies, there weren't that many schools that offered uh, jazz programs. The schools that did, I, it was something I just couldn't afford to go to Berkeley or anything like that. So I did what a lot of people did, uh, was you took, took lessons on the side from a jazz artist. And um, I guess that's something I still do, or, you know, I still work with mentors, and, you know, they've been great. Uh, having, having a teacher uh, can make the world of, the, world of difference for, for any student at any age. And if someone's ears you can trust, and you know they help, help tell you sometimes. You know what? As good as that is, you've done that. You've done that too many times. You need to do something new. And um, uh, that—that's that's always the, you know the push to keep developing. At least for myself, I, I don't want to be a musician that has great success doing the same thing they do over and over again, um, at least compositionally or improvisationally. What did you do after college, Brian? Um, let's see, I taught for a little bit, and I really enjoyed that. Um, it also gets you to think about, uh, you know, presenting music and, and, and its concepts in a, a sequence that makes sense for students and makes you examine the elements of music yourself. And um, I found that it... it helped me in my own process of writing out uh, music exercises, uh, things of that. I know uh, Michael Brecker was famous for, you know, constantly writing exercises out and keeping notebooks and things like that, and David Lehman talks about that. And I, I also, I just, I love doing that, you know, picking up threads of ideas and just trying to develop them in all different ways. And um, when 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 you when you're teaching, you're you're always looking to present concepts to students that they can handle and can understand, especially if they don't 
they're not picking up what originally you're trying to give them. So you have to present it in different ways. So the teaching was was good for me. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, it just became a situation where I, I had my full of uh, administrative duties and things of that nature. And uh, the little voice in the back of my head was uh, my mother's voice telling me, uh, what are you doing in Philadelphia? You're a New Yorker. So uh, I knew it was time to come home. <laughs> so we sold off the farm and came back. And when you came back, was it easy to hop right into the music scene, or were there uh, uh, lean years in the beginning? Well, New York City is so deep. I mean, there are so many fantastic players, and of of every every stripe, of every age, uh, you know. Um, and so you just have to do what everyone, and it makes no difference if you were born here like I was. You have to make the rounds. You have to sit in and, you know, spread your card out and make contact and networking. And But that's exciting, you know, and you just you keep at it, and it's something that never stops. And, I'm, I mean, there's just so many players I would love to do projects with. And it's just a matter of, um, you know, getting to know them, getting them to um, play with me and, you know, and uh, setting up some times to do some things. So that's an ever-evolving situation for all musicians. And, and here in New York, uh, it's just a whirlwind, <laughs> I guess is the best way of saying that. And you're talking very much in the present tense. It sounds like it, that's something you're still involved in, still going around, meeting new folks, coming up with new combinations. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't say that my career is firmly established and uh, everything is, uh, you know, I've got my book filled up completely black ink. Uh, you know, I wish that was the case, but uh, while I have a lot of stuff down, um, you know, it's just you're ever-evolving trying to uh, play with a lot of different people. This CD, Torque, that we've been listening to has been really well-received uh, critically, and I uh, wonder how that feels, how it, what it feels like to put your project out there and have people really embrace it as they have with this recording. Well, it feels wonderful. Um, it really does. Um, you, you work on something for a long time, and you have a passion about it, and uh, you believe in it, um, and you put it out there, and then um, you know you you work at getting it out to as many hands and ears as you can. But there's no guarantee that anyone will even listen to it, let alone uh, report back to it, and then it's the the hopeful expectations that they're going to hear something that they like, positive about it. And it has been great. Um, worldwide, uh, there have been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, great reviews from different uh, um, jazz music, uh, jazz magazines and or just general music magazines. Um, one of the great things about uh, the European scene is music magazines over there... Um, they, they can be very narrowly focused, like in Belgium and German, as far as their traditional jazz and their avant-garde jazz, uh, jazz magazines. But, but they also have this eclectic view of music just being all, all one thing, and they review all types of music. And so it's been great to get you know, some pretty, pretty good, bizarre reviews from all different sources and to have it played on... Um, uh, college stations in Europe as well as here. 
Let's hear some more from it. This is Cross-Eyed from Torque. One thing I love about this this track, and I think it's indicative of the album as a whole, is that you can listen you can listen through to it time and time again, listening just to one musician at a time. And there's so much stuff going on, you know, with each individual player. It just uh, it really sounds like a fun session, just a, a session where everyone had a chance to say what they wanted to say. Oh, cool! Yeah, it was fun. Um, I don't think anyone felt, you know, uh, uh, you know boxed or in a narrow position that everyone could state anything musically or even talking about verbally what you know we could attempt to do next um it was uh you know i guess the true test is is like you know in great sports teams you know if, if they hang out together after after the game and you know we definitely hung out and talked about you know everything not just music and it was you know they're great individuals you know and with great knowledge about so much in life and so it was it was cool it really was sam rivers is a guy who did you know so much to keep creative music alive in in new york um you know during the loft period and with his own uh, kind of adventures um <laughs> in the in the label world and uh, the studio world and I, i'm just wondering uh what it was like to get to spend some time with him and uh what kind of a person he was well, you, you definitely know uh, you're in the presence of a jazz master, and uh, and that's a hint to the you know the NEA to uh, um, you know consider it's him to uh, <laughs> honor him. Um, you know he's he's a giant that still walks amongst us, and you know there there are other great ones walking around, and uh, unfortunately there are fewer and fewer, and and just to be in his presence was was wonderful and just to hear him talk and and he wasn't so much you know giving us you know giving you know you know the great stories and all that kind of thing um while there were were great stories he he you know he knows music inside and out and one of the great things about sam is you know he is super into the form no matter how out you think he's playing he's he knows exactly which measure he's in, what chord he's playing over, and um, he's following a form. Uh, and, he, you know, he, he can play as straight ahead, you know, as anybody, if he wants to, you know, if he hears it that way. And, and, and by, you know, the flip of, of another neuron, you know, he can go in these so many multiple you know, hyperspace directions that it's just amazing his technique and what he hears. It's uh, it's really quite cool. Last year, you premiered a piece uh, called "Sweet for Dance," and uh, I really 
really, really enjoy musicians who write for other media besides just sitting in a in a room and listening. And I wonder, uh, have, have you written a lot of pieces for dancers or other multimedia? You mentioned earlier in the show that you had uh, done some other work recently. And how have you found that experience? Oh, I loved it. I really did. Um, to, to work with, you know, other artists in, in a different medium. And, you, you know, uh, modern dancers are, are improvisizing a lot. And, you know, their bodies are fluid just as musicians' melodic lines are. And to watch them twist and turn while you're, you're you know, making an improvisation, that, that inspires you. And um, it's... Uh, it was it was quite quite rewarding to to uh, work on the comp- compositions themselves and trying to find a material that was strong rhythmically and melodically for them to use as a jumping off point for their improvisation and and for their non improvisation dance steps. Um, and uh, uh, one of the compositions had alternating measures of six and five. Not that I wanted you to hear that. But I wanted to have that that fluid, um, not locked into a groove kind of thing that would would keep would provide them with a landscape that would uh, you know move in different directions. And there was another composition that was in in seven that went through different cycles. And then just because I love ballads, I uh, took one of the songs from uh, that I worked with Sam River, Rivers, Oculus, and completed it into a full ballad. And, uh, and, you know, um, you can hear Francesca Tanksley play that on piano on my website, and she just, like, you know, hits a home run with it. It's just so beautiful and lush. What's the collaborative process like when you were writing uh, The Suite for Dance? Were you, did you already have some elements of the dance that you knew you were choreographing the music to, or uh, were they going to do, were they going to write their piece to whatever you came up with? I think it was more of the latter. Um, I mean, I definitely met with the choreographer, uh, Cheryl Lynn Laviano, and talked about what she wanted to accomplish and what she was looking for. And with based upon those guidelines, I wrote some music, and then I would play it for her uh, on piano a little bit, even though my piano chops are so poor. And then um, eventually I got um, Francesca to uh, play the full score on piano, for for their group to uh, rehearse to, and um, and of course we played it as a, as a live uh, uh, quartet, you know, during the performances, and um, it was improvisatory enough, so it was different in every performance for the entire week, and that was exhilarating, and you know, anytime you're you have willing collaborators and people that are willing to stretch things, uh, it was. You know, it's cool. And I just have to say, um, I guess it was listening to Cecil Taylor and working with him and, and his involvement with dance and love of dance, and I hadn't really thought about it until um, talking with him and listening to him that I gave serious thought to, like, that would be something I'd really love to try. What other projects are you working on now, Brian? What's coming up for you? Oh, I have some very interesting projects uh, with the bassist Lal Ellis. Um, who's very much into uh, electronics and computer laptops. And while I am a firm believer in playing improvisatory music and playing a, play my horn, I, I don't want to sound like another uh, Miles Davis circus 
you know, 1975. We, we have worked out some things that we want to work on, and in fact, uh, just listening to uh, the French-Vietnamese guitarist, uh, I can never pronounce his name correct, I think it's Nai Jim Lee. That's right. Yeah. His uh, latest project um, on ACT uh, Records, uh, with, which uses a, an Italian trumpet player, that's, that really uh, helps solidify that that that's something I want to uh, to investigate, and of course uh, the trumpet player over here, uh, Mr. Kwang Vu, you know, and all of his work uh, with Pat Messini, this that's dynamite stuff. So I've got a project there, and working with uh, the Swedish guitarist Anders Nielsen and his brother Peter, the drummer, um, we we have something going with uh, Francois Grulo, uh, bass player, um, working with Patrick Brennan. Uh, um, alto saxophonist and tenor saxophonist here, and I still have in the works a multimedia piece uh, developing with uh, Joseph Hayes again and Doug Matthews and the graphic artist Tim Perot, and that's based upon my love of maps and cartology, and so we're kind of, that's sort of a large project, hopefully it'll involve a large grant, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I just continue to write you know, even if the grants don't come in, and you know, you just you just throw as much stuff up, and hopefully that you know something sticks. And um, yeah, at least for myself, I, I can't not write. I mean, there's just so many pieces of paper lying around my apartment with you know fragments and ideas and things to do, and and I'm always buying CDs, and I hear something by someone else. Not that I'm trying to copy them, but they'll trigger an idea like, "Ooh, suppose I did that, but did it this way," and so you know. Um, I've got all these CDs with masking tape, you know, marking, you know, which minute, and, you know, sections that I, you know, that I'm interested in, and I, you know, always transcribing something. You know, Joanne Burkine is always telling me, you got to transcribe, you know, you got to keep, keep those avenues open and listening and, and recording. So it's busy. <laughs> Well, it all sounds really great. You just named a lot of great uh, players, and uh, really looking forward to, to hearing more from you, and, and thank you so much for coming on and talking about it with us on the Jazz Session. Oh, it's been my pleasure. A real good hang. Thank you.
Oculus from the new album Torque by Brian Groder with Sam Rivers. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com. In addition to episodes of the show, thejazzsession.com features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. The site also features a link to the Jazz Session Cause of the Month. This month, it's Tipitina's Foundation. Please click the link and give them some cash. Thanks. For more interviews and reviews, you can visit allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. You'll find my writing there beside that of many other jazz experts and fans. You can contact the show by sending an email to jason at thejazzsession.com or call 585-473-5304. You may also want to join the Jazz Session mailing list, which keeps you up to date with all the guests who are going to be on the show and send you some updates about other things in the world of Jason Crane. The theme music for the Jazz Session is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session logo. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.